It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you're dead. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 is the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. He's Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes as it was a relatively lengthy weekend without Giants football because they played on Thanksgiving. So we'll recap that game. As I'm having withdrawal, Lance. I'm having withdrawal. You're having some withdrawal. Well, we'll try to get you through it somehow, Paul. I know it was probably very tough. Can to... we fast forward to Sunday, please? Well, and that's going to be one heck of a game, given the fact that Washington now has won six of seven and is just a game back of the Giants. So we'll certainly get into that. And a reminder, you can interact with us multiple ways. Give us a ring, 201-939-4513. You can also hit us up on Twitter, hashtag Giants Chat. And a reminder, you can find the archive of the show on our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So, Paul, let's start with the Dallas game because we didn't have a show on Friday so this is really our first opportunity to recap and go over what transpired on Thanksgiving as the Cowboys ultimately won 28-20. to They sweeped the season series, and it was really a tale of two halves, you could argue, for both teams. Giants had a 13-7 lead at the break. Dallas scores three touchdowns on each of its first three possessions. But I look at this game, it's about missed opportunities, Paul. Giants had two interceptions. They only scored three points. And then Dallas was aggressive, remember, going for it on fourth and two early in the game. And all the Giants wound up getting was a field goal because they had multiple penalties on the ensuing drive. So Giants really, first half, they go into the locker room really playing the coulda, woulda, shoulda game under all those circumstances. I felt as though the Giants were behind in the game even though they had a 13-7 to lead at halftime. I told somebody down on the field, I said, this does not bode well. They should be ahead by much more than this. They have squandered opportunities. They have basically given the keys to the door to the Dallas Cowboys. And you know that the war of attrition is going to catch up to the Giants. This is not going to be a second-half game for them because they just don't have enough of their regular bodies. So it was only a matter of time before Dallas was going to mount an assault. Now, for the Giants to be able to survive that assault, they were going to have to build up a bigger cushion. And they gave themselves chances to do that, but failed. And that's why I felt at halftime, it felt to me like, okay, they're behind because they don't have a big enough lead to hold on to this thing. And then when Dallas came out and drove that second-half kickoff right down the field, they totally put their hands around the throat of the game. And then when Barkley drops the fourth-down throw by Jones, which was a bit off, but certainly in the box, and one that Barkley has to catch right then and there, you, you, you just knew. And, of course, Dallas then goes on to score on their ensuing next two possessions with consecutive touchdowns, I mean, you know, you just knew. By that point, the dam had sprung so many leaks, there was no saving the village. Yeah, the Giants, let's face it, they could not keep up with the Cowboys. I mean, that to me is the best way to describe things. They could not get off the field on third down on defense. Dallas was 7 of 11. And then here's now the second straight week in a row, Paul. What did the Lions do in the red zone? Four touchdowns, five opportunities. Well, Dallas was one better. They were 4-4. Four four. Mm-hmm. So that means that now the last two opponents have gone eight touchdowns and nine red zone opportunities. That was a strength of the Giants' defense. That disappeared over the last two games. Third down defense was also a strength. That has been a bit of an issue. 
those things, you got to clean them up, especially based on the upcoming opponents. But to your point about how you still felt they were behind, I would absolutely agree with you. And it goes back to my old philosophy. Time of possession is great. It's all about what you do with it. Dallas, they had the ball for a lot more than the Giants. What did they do? They finished with touchdowns. The Giants, I mean, they barely had any at-bats in the second half, Paul. You mentioned the fourth and one. Then the next possession, five plays a punt. Then another turnover on downs. Then they finally get a late touchdown. But let's face it, the game was pretty much out of hand at that point. Sure. There wasn't a lot of substance, I guess my point is, with those second-half possessions. No, and I think the disappointing thing from the Giants' perspective is that, you know, we've been talking all year about next man up, which has been good enough against lesser opponents. But now you're stepping up in competition. You're now going from the middleweights to the super middleweights, if you will, or even the light heavies. And what you find out there is that next man up, especially when you're going another level or two deeper, it's just not good enough to get it done. Which, in all honesty, Lance, we all we all understood that. I mean, this was not a mathematical equation that surprised us. And they're playing Washington now, and they literally... Uh, look, the Giants season comes down to the two Washington games. They can afford to split and still be in pretty good shape. If they win the two games against Washington over the course of the next three weeks, they're going to make the playoffs. It's, it would be almost impossible for them to, to not if they were to beat Washington twice. But they've got to beat them at least once, in my opinion, to have a realistic chance of making it and it starts with this home game on Sunday and that's why the war of attrition becomes another part of this equation how many Giants injured players are going to be able to make it back for Sunday's game whether it's Bredesen or Jolari uh, could it be Evan Neal could it be Bellinger we're not 100% sure which of those sick guys or hurt guys are going to be able to play but that to me is a huge key for them to be able to to win this game at MetLife. Especially for the sake of depth. Now, Washington's not as high-scoring of a team as the Cowboys, but their defense has been playing very well. As you notice, some of the scores, especially last game against the Falcons yesterday, they come up with a deflection by Deron Payne, and then Kendall Fuller comes through with the interception in the end zone. They hold off the Falcons by six. It'll be also interesting, speaking of returning players, Chase Young did not make Paul his season debut yesterday. Does he now come back? after obviously tearing his ACL midway through last season. That's another storyline from Washington's perspective. But, yeah, here we go. I mean, we said these four games were going to define the season. Nothing has drastically changed. But I will say this, Paul. Even if in the hypothetical world that you laid out, they do split, keep in mind, the other team that is in the hunt is Seattle. And what did Seattle do to the Giants? They beat them head-to-head. So even if you do split, Seattle is another team that you have to be concerned with depending on obviously what Washington does outside of the Giants game. So that's the wild card in all of this because the Seahawks, they already have had a head-to-head matchup with the Giants. But you figure all of these NFC East teams that are not going to play each other down the stretch because right now if the players were to start today, everybody would be in for the NFC East, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. I mean, it's unheard of for four teams in the same division to make the playoffs. But now they're going to start playing each other. And what happens when teams play each other? They tend to beat each other up. So this is why we're going to start to separate the men from the boys, essentially, over these next few weeks. Lance, I think it's quite clear, based on the separation that we saw last week 
and it just further enhanced itself this past weekend. It's eight teams for seven spots. Yep. It's really that simple. Okay? One team is going to be left out of this dance of musical chairs. One team. Now, if you look at the schedules, Giants have a tough one. Washington has a really tough one also. Seattle, not so much. Now, the Giants do have a one-game lead over Seattle. Yep. Okay? So, so they've got that tiny little bit of breathing room right now, but you're correct because Seattle won the head-to-head. You really would rather not finish tied with them because that's not going to bode well because that eliminates one of the spots. It would go to the Seahawks, and now you'd be forced to go into a tie-breaking situation or, for that matter, a head-to-head record situation with Washington. That's why I'm saying if the Giants split with Washington, okay, now at least it gives them a sporting chance to make it ahead of the Commanders if Seattle should grab the second wild card. That's why a split with Washington is necessary. Nothing less than a split will do. It's my feeling. If the Giants get swept by Washington, they're done. They're not making it. Yeah, I mean, it would be very difficult under those circumstances, especially knowing they still have, obviously, two games with Philadelphia. They're playing the Vikings. I mean, it's no picnic coming up. Right. And now, we don't if, know- you, if you sweep Washington, though, however, Lance, it basically puts the commanders in really, really oh, bad sure. shape because now you're, you're going to move into such a good position regarding them that they're, they're going to be fighting Seattle then for the last spot because the Giants are pretty much going to be in. Well, you're one game up on Washington right now, to your point. If you sweep them, now all of a sudden it jumps to three, but really it jumps to four because you hold Correct. the tiebreaker on Correct. them. Correct. Given the fact that you swept. Yes. So, huge advantage. This is it. It's a two-game season yes. is really what it comes down to. Everything that we have seen since July when training camp started comes down, in all honesty, basically to a two-game season. It's what they do against Washington. Well, I tried to tell people last week, the Dallas game, yes, it, it, it does affect your overall record. It certainly takes you out of the mix for the division, certainly probably solidifies Dallas more as one of the wild cards and forget about finishing ahead of them in all likelihood. Okay, I get all of that. But if your concern was just to make the playoffs, that Dallas game was a, was a, a microscopic crumb it's the two Washington games that will determine the Giants' fate. It's really that simple. And interestingly, interestingly Washington has the Giants back-to-back because they have the buy-in between. They're playing them this week, then they're off, and then they play them again week 15 at home, whereas the Giants obviously have the Eagles in between. So the dynamics, Paul, of the scheduling is a little bit different. Yeah. You just wonder, does the rest, especially, you know, when you get a late buy, and sometimes that could give a team a surge. We saw it with Tampa Bay two years ago when they won their final four games and went on to win the Super Bowl, does that give them a little bit of a push considering they haven't had their buy and Clearly, the Giants have had it already. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's a huge influence, but it doesn't hurt, I'm sure, from Washington's perspective that they're going to get a little rest in between both of those games. Well, especially when you consider between that sandwich, the Giants have to play Philadelphia. Yep, exactly. And that's going to be a rock'em, sock'em kind of game. Regardless of how it turns out, you know the Giants are going to get battered and bruised in that game. That's going to be a a steel cage match. And so the Giants are in such a situation where we're hoping they get healthier this week, but then they got to come out of this game and they got to come out of the Philadelphia game without being further injured or significantly hampered because they will have to go down to Washington and play in a rematch. And it's not going to do them any good. 
if they're going back down to Washington, down nine guys on the Idrin list? Well, I think the key position to watch is clearly the secondary, given what Dallas was able to do, because not to get off topic, but the reason why, Paul, Dallas was 7 of 11 on third down, to me the killer was Cowboys did not have all favorable third downs in that game if you go back. They right. converted a third and 11, a third and 12, and a third and 15 to Dalton Schultz on the touchdown. So if you're the Giants, you're like, we have the Cowboys where we want, but then they couldn't get off the field regardless of the down and distance. So does the secondary get some reinforcements? Or if they don't, you know, do those guys learn from their mistakes? And also, here's the other thing. We talked about this last week, if you remember, leading into the Thanksgiving game. Wink went through this in Baltimore last season. He was down several corners, several safeties. Secondary struggled down the stretch of the season. Does he learn from what happened last season combined with the Cowboys game that maybe you can't leave guys on an island out to dry if you don't have the heavy lifters on the back end of the secondary? Now, granted, I understand Washington poses a different challenge than Dallas, but in fairness, you still got Terry McLaurin, you got Curtis Samuel, you got Jahan Dotson, you got Logan Thomas. It's not as if they don't have guys that they can stretch the field here coming up on Sunday. You know, the second half of that game, the Giants are playing Nick McLeod full-time on one boundary. Had never played more than 39 snaps in a game, and all of a sudden he's playing 75 in Dallas. Like I said, the war of attrition. In the first half, when the Giants had the 13-7 lead, I thought the secondary held up well. They allowed Dallas to get many contested catches simply because Prescott was throwing darts that were right on the money, and their guys simply refused to drop the ball. There were three passes in particular where Giants defensive backs were right there. They whacked at the receiver after the ball was caught, and they still held on. I gave tremendous credit to Prescott for his throws and to the receivers on the Cowboys who simply refused to let the ball hit the ground. Now, again, once the attrition set in, and now you're exposing McLeod and uh, and Rodarius Williams, who were forced into play in full-time situations out there on the boundary. And all of a sudden now, guys are getting a little more room, you know. And and now, you know, as Dallas has that snowball rolling downhill, the Giants' defense is exposed, and the coverage was not as good in the second half. And Dallas's receivers had more room, and they just continued to pile it on. But... You know, I felt bad. I told I talked to Darnay Holmes in the locker room after the game, and I said, Darnay, there were a number of times you guys had blanket coverage. What's that frustration like when you know you're there and the ball is just right in the middle of that bullseye and the receiver just refuses to let the ball go? And he laughed. He's like, someday you got to give credit to them. They made, they made the plays. They get paid too. And, and you know, that was also part of why – Dallas was able to to uh, uh, stick around in the first half because they were making those plays in the Giants secondary. That, in all honesty, I, be- I bet you half the teams in the league are having two or three drops there in that first half. But Dallas, they just wouldn't let the ball hit the ground. Michael Gallup, in particular, Paul, I would yeah. highlight he made some really big catches. Where Lamb he had a of, couple too. Yeah, it was. Equivalent to basketball, right? When a guy is posting up somebody down low, Gallup just got really good positioning, was able to jump up, make the catch, and Dalton Schultz is another one who made some nifty grabs, and it's no surprise. What's the common element with those two guys? They did not play in week three. 
Okay? Mm-hmm. Cowboys got some reinforcements. And they and killed the Giants this time. Took advantage. Correct. Killed exactly. Them. And yeah. then how about the touchdown where, uh, um, uh, what was it, Lamb's toe? Yep. His ankle. His hand. ankle. His yep. ankle. One hand. I mean, talk about ridiculous. That was typical of how the Giants' day was going. He makes this absolutely ridiculous, spectacular, no business-making grab in the back of the end zone. And simply because his ankle turned and hit the back line, it wound up going incomplete and, and the touchdown came off the board. But it just would have been poetic justice if the touchdown had counted because that's typical of the kind of grabs that the Cowboys were making all day long. Now, in fairness, one play later, they wound up running it in anyway yes, they for did. two yards. So <laughs> yes, they did. It didn't really make a difference. I'm sure Dallas may have something to talk about if they had to settle for a field goal under those circumstances. But, yeah, it was certainly a microcosm of the type of day, specifically in the second half, it was for the Giants. And we've seen these routines before where the Giants, one half is somewhat solid, and the other half, it's unrecognizable. And now that you're playing divisional foes, you can't have this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde routine. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm paying attention to here down the stretch. It doesn't matter what the halftime score is. It's about what team shows up in the final two quarters and against the Lions, where they were trailing by double figures, in fairness, in that game, but you were still within striking distance. And then the last two games, Paul, the first drive in the third quarter, That's another common element, right? What does Detroit do? They march down the field and they got a good return Mm -hmm. on special teams. Dallas, same thing. That almost, you could argue, has made or broken the Giants right out of the gates to start the second half. Well, it was virtually a double dip. Yep, for Dallas because the Giants did nothing with that one possession. Yes, previous same situation. Where at the end of the first half, the Giants did nothing with that possession and it virtually became a double dip. This is a team that cannot afford to give up double dips. Absolutely. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Now, I will tell you this. Looking at Heineke from the, the Commanders. Heineke, yeah. He, he, yes, Heineke. Heineke. Think beer. Heineke. Think beer. Yes. I, I just hope they kick uh, Washington's Heineke is what I hope. <laughs> oh, look at you pulling But in any punts. event, yes. uh, he has thrown picks in five of his six games six since he took over for Wentz. Okay? So he does have somewhat of a propensity to turn it over. What the Giants can't do, Lance is get a takeaway and then not convert it into points, specifically sevens. Because we know this game is going to be a drag them out tug-of-war, down-in-the-mud slugfest, okay? The rubber pellets out of that artificial turf are going to be flying like crazy on Sunday. And it's going to be up to the Giants to take advantage of every opportunity they get. You cannot squander opportunities in this kind of game against that Redskins defensive front which is going to do everything they can to make it a lockdown, low-scoring affair. Well, last point to piggyback off of what you're saying before we open up the phone lines, and I agree wholeheartedly with you, and this is, I think, getting overlooked. I mentioned Washington has won six of their last seven, but look at what they're holding opponents to. They held the Bears to seven, the Packers to 21, the Colts to 16. They lost to the Vikings. The Vikings only scored 20. The Eagles, okay, they... Remember, upset them. They held Philly to 21. They did actually a really good job, better than most. The Texans, 10, and the Falcons, 13. The bottom line is this Washington defense has really, you could argue, been the heart and soul of this team right now, and they could potentially get Chase Young back. So don't expect that the Giants are going to come into that game. And granted, it hasn't been like that for the majority of the season where the Giants are lighting up the scoreboard. But I agree with you 
from the sense of this is not the Dallas game where it's a track meet, perhaps. This is field positioning, clawing it out, finishing in the red zone, getting a turnover, shortening the field, one of those grinded-out type of affairs. It could very well be. Ugly football. The beauty of the NFL is you don't get style points like college football. It doesn't matter whether you win by two, you win by ten. Makes no difference. Has no influence on the standings. But this Washington team has been extremely stingy. And that's going to put some more pressure on a Giants offense that has had its ups and downs in terms of putting points on the board. Look at the total points for the season, Lance. Giants have been outscored by their opponents by seven. Washington's been outscored by their opponents by three. Both teams want to play conservative, offensive game plan, grind it out. Washington's got the two-headed monster with Robinson and and Gibson. The Giants have Barkley, but they both want to primarily run the ball, grind it out on offense, try not to make mistakes, win the field position battle, and hope that their defense holds up. Now, Washington does it with their defensive front by getting a ton of sacks and a ton of pressure. Okay, the Giants defense does it by being really good on third down and being really good in the red zone, although the war of attrition has certainly hampered their ability to do so. But in all reality, these game plans are not very different. They both have a general philosophy about how they want to win a game. They want to keep the game just about to the high teens, low 20s and survive. That's what these two teams want to do. I mean, look, break out the steel chairs, break out the foreign objects, okay? Because we're going to see ourselves a steel cage match on Sunday. So it's Hulk Hogan against King Kong Bundy to build a parallel for you in terms of we're looking ahead to Sunday's matchup between the Giants and the Commanders. Few reminders before we open up the phone lines. The Giants Huddle Podcast, make sure you go subscribe. Podcast features a rapid reaction right after each game with one of our analysts, an episode midweek featuring an interview with an international analyst, and then a game preview featuring a long-form interview with a current Giants player, an exclusive sit-down with Bob Papa and head coach Brian Dable, and an opponent preview of that week's opponent search for Giants Huddle on your favorite podcast platform, or you can listen on the Giants app or at Giants.com slash podcast. Also, don't miss the second legacy game at MetLife Stadium. It is coming up this weekend. The team will be in their throwback uniforms from the 80s and the 90s. They host the Washington Commanders. The stadium is going to be branded in throwback designs, including an exclusive collectible pennant for the first 30,000 fans in attendance. Limited tickets are still available. You can visit Giants.com slash tickets to secure your seat today. Also, the Giants' official connected TV streaming app, Giants TV, brings original video content and game highlights on demand and direct to Big Blue fans. Giants TV is free. It's on Apple TV, Roku, and Amazon Fire TV, as well as the Giants mobile app. All right, let's open up the lines, 201-939-4513. Steve is in Connecticut. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Steve? Hey, guys, what's going on? Hi. Doing all right. Um, I just what's on your mind? Two, uh, two, um, two points, one on Dable and um, one, on, one on Odell. I just wanted to preface my, um, my point on Odell with two things. I think there's a big misconception um, and a narrative being put out there that the Giants are – you know, quote unquote, the year one of a rebuild, um, and I think going into the year that was that's a fear take. If you look at the new regime and you look at a lot of questionable players, right? You don't know about your quarterback, you don't know about your running back, a lot of the you know key players that you drafted, you're not sure about. But um, from hearing from you guys, and I think you agree that that um, you know if Daniel's the answer and Barkley, you want to give an extension to, and you look at Dexter and you look at some of the safeties and you look at the D line. 
Um, you're looking at a team right now that actually has a quarterback going into, you know, coming off his rookie contract. You're looking at a running back that's going into his prime years on a contract. So you're not really, this is really the, the beginning of the Giants window. And just and the regime, you know, being the fact that it's their first two years doesn't really dictate otherwise. Um, and then the other point is that if you look at any um, quarterback in the last five years that has really been, you know, uh, risen to the top of the league as the new young gun, they all have one thing in common, and that is that their team has brought in, you know, a big-time wide receiver or multiple wide receivers, whether it's Stephon Diggs, whether it's A.J. Brown, whether it's Tyreek Hill. You know, there, there, there hasn't really been a, a quarterback that has succeceeded without. Well, in fairness, Cameron, receiver. if you're making the comparison, though, to Odell Beckham, Odell Beckham is not in the same category as any of those guys. So I really don't think that's a fair comparison. No. No, a hundred percent. But 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 my my idea is, you know, I, I, Shane has done a great job. But that does not mean we can't criticize him, and it doesn't mean you know giving up picks, whether it's a second rounder at the deadline or whether it's signing Odell. I think he should be doing all three. I think he should have gave up at the deadline. I think he should sign Odell to a two a two year deal. I think he should then go in and draft a first rounder because if you look at the you know look at this team, there aren't a lot of units of this team that are missing. Um, uh, big t- uh, big time. I mean, you could look at the linebacker spot. You could look at maybe a second cornerback. But really, the big place that they're missing is really just that wide receiver. And that's why I think they should be investing two or three um, places in it. And and I think you know, firstly because I think their window's starting now, and I also think because they need it for Daniel. Well, I mean, I disagree with you from the standpoint of that it's so simple that it's just like one or two pieces that they're away from solidifying a lot of question marks on this team. And I think Joe Shane understands that, and that's why he doesn't want to sacrifice draft capital. To your point, he could still address the wide receiver position in the upcoming draft. That has not that ship has not sailed, so that's not necessarily out of striking distance. As far as giving Odell Beckham a two-year contract, the guy's coming off a torn ACL. He hasn't played since the Super Bowl. Why would you want to commit to somebody when you haven't even seen him on the football field and you could wind up, to your point, drafting a guy in the first round at that position? I don't necessarily because, think that adds up. Well, well, I'll tell you like this. You know, we, we know this very well over the last 10 years as Giant fans that you, you're in a position to make the playoffs. You don't take that for granted. You know, just throwing it around that this is a rebuild year when you're no, seven Steve, and four. No, Steve, I, I understand you don't take those things for granted. I'm not disagreeing with you. I mean, the Jets, I think, are of that mindset given they made a quarterback change. Robert Sala saying the same thing. We're 6-4. and four. We haven't made the playoffs since 2010. I'm not just going to throw it away. I have no problem with that. Uh, what I have a problem with is it seems like you're of the mindset that Odell Beckham is the missing piece that takes them to the promised land. I disagree with you there. I don't think you put Odell Beckham on this team and this team gets 10 times better than it is currently. That's my problem. Well, then, well, then let me ask you. Odell and, um, and Jerry Judy, is that the difference? Where maybe no, I, I, don't, the I don't think because- Jerry Judy, if you're bringing up somebody that was thrown around during the trade deadline, Judy also, A, has had issues staying healthy, and he's hurt right now, by the way. And the Broncos' offense, which brought Russell Wilson into the equation, the last time I checked, you know, they haven't necessarily lit up the scoreboard. So you're banking on, you're taking a guy away from a Denver team that has not lived up to expectations. You're going to put him in your offense midseason, by the way, and all of a sudden he's going to build unbelievable chemistry with Daniel Jones, and that's going to take them up a notch. And I would say I don't necessarily think that would come to fruition as well. Okay, well, I I hear you. Um... One more point about Dable. I, I think that with you guys, you know, um, if I you know, uh, disagree with one thing, is that we could agree that he's done a great job and also agree to criticize him on one bad move. Um, I heard your arguments about Adoree Jackson, one about it being coaching scared, and the other one 
about, um, you know, he could have got hurt on any play. But if you look at the percentages of punt returners, it's not close in getting injured. And I think it's not coaching scared. I think it's coaching smart. Arguably one of the most important players to his unit. You guys called him the MVP at the halfway point. And the same way you don't put a Daniel Jones back there or a Saquon Barkley, there's one guy you saw from the Dallas game. You just don't put him back there. You can find other guys to make fair catches. The Giants were averaging five yards on a punt return. So, so Steve, well, like then why did big... why did the Kansas City Chiefs do it with Tyreek Hill? Then can you explain that to me? Why they do it with Tyreek Hill okay. when he was Listen, on the team? Because well, what I was telling you with Tyreek Hill is that is that he's a guy that had had actually that had, that was one of his specialties. And I'll ask you like this. If, if you're so sure that it's coaching scared to do it, when Adore comes back and that, that, that knee gets back to form or whatever, do they put him back there again? I have a feeling. Well, it, dep- it depends so, uh, on if they can establish the- somebody at that position in between. And I would think probably considering he got hurt and he's valuable in the secondary, it, it may change their thinking. But I think a lot depends on does somebody emerge at that position during the time that he's sidelined. That influences coaching so decisions put- as well. So you would put Barkley back there? You're, yeah, it's so I would. I would put, put if Barkley is the best option to return. I would absolutely consider putting Barkley back there. That's my philosophy. That's what I subscribe to. The best players, the most talented players, if they help your team in other facets, I have no problem utilizing them. I think that across the board, whether it's the Giants, the Cowboys, the Chiefs, the Steelers, it makes no difference to me. Do you remember when Odell Beckham Jr. was with the Giants and they would throw him back there on returns yeah. every once in a while because they felt they needed something no. to happen? Do you remember that? I, I or maybe maybe you sure. maybe you I, were I sleeping they, for about five years and had no clue <laughs> no. as to what the team was doing. No, they did not throw him back there. Check it up. I remember the. Oh, they did actually, my friend. Was on a fake. No, actually, once they did. They did, they did throw him back there. They did throw him back there on punt returns. Obviously, obviously, you did not watch or you were sleeping for five years. One or the other. No, That's in okay. A playoff game. They, That's all right. Not a problem. No, they did it twice. I remember. I remember the two times they did it. Steve, the bottom line is I'm bringing up Odell Beckham's statistics in terms of kickoff returns and punt returns. And if you look at the numbers, he had, on average, he had 21 returns in 2014. He had 10 returns in 2016. That's punts, okay? And he also, in between that, he had two in 2015 and then eight in 2018. So the facts show that it's not accurate what you're saying and appreciate the phone call. And listen... He can, uh, Paul, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'll let you no, continue. No, no, it's I, fine. I, I yeah. just, I, I have problems listening to anybody trying to make a case when they sure. can't even get the facts straight. Well, that's, and, and that's, that's a huge no, problem. You, and you basically, you took the words out of my mouth. See, th- what I was going to say is, callers can disagree with us. I have no problem. I welcome people looking at things differently. But when your argument is supported, and this is what you're getting at, Paul, in Items that don't add up from a factual standpoint, we dismiss that. You can't make an argument based on fairy tales. Odell Beckham did return, and he was utilized more than just once over his career. 41 punt returns over his five years with the Giants. So how can you make an argument they barely (laughs) utilized him? I mean, it's ridiculous. If he only saw two of them, he was sleeping for almost five years, this guy. Exactly. And and I understand people are annoyed that Adore got hurt. Fine. You could feel that way. We're not telling you not to. Right. But don't bring up things that did not happen. And then Tyreek Hill, who's another guy, because people are tired of me throwing out Antonio Brown, telling me Antonio Brown played in the 18th century, which is also ridiculous, but fine. So you want me to give you a more recent guy? Fine. Tyreek Hill. 2016 right. was his rookie year. 
He returned the ball 39 times on punts, you know, 25 Lance. in 2017, 20 in 2018. Here, here's the great example of all, Deion Sanders. Cordero Patterson, too? That's I mean, another one yeah. that's very good from the Atlanta West. Falcons. And, that's a good one, And Deion yep. Sanders, the greatest, the greatest sure. cover corner maybe in history, well, was but Paul, also remember, one Deion of the played returners. in the 16th century. That's, the pro- that's what yeah. people are going to tell you. Yeah. He played I mean, in the 16th century. Here's the so. problem. It's been done many times over the years. Yep. It's whatever that coach at that particular time feels he has to do. Now, are there times where it's worked out fine? Sure. Are there times where the guy has gotten hurt? Yeah, Jason Seahorn. Yes, Adoree Jackson. Yeah, it's happened. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. Okay? You're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't. You have to play the game. You have to try to win the game. And if it means that that's what you got to do, then that's what you do. Now, I get it. I get it. Jackson got hurt, so everybody's really sour about it. Look, I'm not telling you that I would have put him back there. Chances are I probably would not have, okay? But my bigger issue is that when Richie James had the fumbles in Seattle and they decided to take him off punt return duty, he was also not doing anything in the receiving core at the time. But yet he still had a roster spot. My only gripe with the Giants, it's not so much that Jackson was back there. My only gripe was if you're keeping Richie James on the roster, and he's not going to run routes in the offense, then he might as well be back there catching the punts. If you didn't want him catching the punts because he fumbled, then he shouldn't be on the team because at that point in time, it was the only job that he had. So that would be my gripe. It would not necessarily be that Jackson was back there. It's that why did you keep Richie James on the roster if you weren't going to use him? 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. DeAndre Carter is another guy I want to throw out there for the Chargers with Mike Williams and Keenan Allen a little bit banged up. He's been a solid wide receiver. He's their main return guy too. So we see starters being utilized in many different scenarios. Let's head back to the lines. Cameron is in Queens joining us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Cameron? Hey, what's up, Paul and John? Uh, Hi. Or Lance. It's okay. (laughs) I've been called worse. (laughs) Go ahead. Oh, okay. I, I just wanted to talk about uh, if you've noticed the downturn of Saquon's last two games and it maybe if it had anything to do with uh, the high rushing attempts against the Texans. I don't think there's any doubt there's been an accumulation because he's well on pace to break all kinds of, of touches, records for his, his own personal stats. There's no doubt that he was heavily, heavily used in the first half of the season, and they needed him to win those games. So you can't look back and regret that. You have to say they did what was necessary to win. I will say this. The bigger problem for me is that his trust and his confidence in the jumbled line that they've had since the Seattle game and the loss of Daniel Bellinger in the blocking game as the Giants' starting tight end. To me, those factors are probably as much, if not more, of an indication as to why he has been less effective. I would agree he has taken some wear and tear, and I'm sure that's a part of it. But I think it's the the jumbled line, just as you know he had shown that he was able to get things going behind those guys, they had to change out because of injury. And then Bellinger came out too. Bellinger was really good blocking. Uh, and And, you know... I mean, is it any wonder? I tried to tell everybody this for the last three years. When Barkley wasn't running as assertively, 
with as much confidence and with as much determination. And people kept saying, oh, he's dancing, he's pitter-pattering. No, the psychology of a running back. I have had this very conversation with Otis Anderson, Rodney Hampton, and Joe Morris for literally hours at a time. And all three of them said to me, if your running back does not have trust and confidence in the blocks that are going to be thrown in front of him, he will not run with confidence. Case closed. That is the biggest factor in why Barkley did not have, uh, in addition to obviously the injuries, did not have the kind of year the Giants needed from him when he was on the field the last three seasons, and it's exactly what's happened to him the last couple of weeks. And I think the biggest yeah. problem with the run game right now is Barkley's not getting to the second level of the defense because when you get him to the second level of the defense, you like his chances against a linebacker or a secondary player. They're not getting enough push for him to get to the second level. And to me, the most noticeable difference has been the lack of explosive plays on the ground. No doubt. And it really has gone back, I'd say, the last four or five games it's been a bad trend. So that's what you yeah. want to see come back. And remember, when, when, some, when some guy throws up a clip on Twitter and says, look, Barkley didn't hit this hole as much as he should have. Well, you know why? Because he didn't have trust that the block was going to hold up like it was designed to. And that's why he's not hitting the hole as hard as he's supposed to, because he doesn't trust the block. It's really very simple, folks. And every running back yeah. who's ever played in this game will tell you that. I wouldn't trust it either with uh, the inconsistency with injuries in the line. Uh, if I could fit one more question, I think Julian Love is having a heck of a season. I think his contract's expiring at the end of this year. Do you guys yeah. see the Giants uh, extending him? I think he's leading the Well, they've the already talked to him about far. it, and, and they've made it clear they want him back, and he's made it clear that he wants to stay. So I suspect something will get done. Yeah, I would think he That's and awesome. Dexter Lawrence are two guys that certainly warrant attention when it comes to getting a new contract, and appreciate the phone call, Cameron. I want to throw out some numbers to support what I was talking about, the lack of explosive plays. Paul, you go back to the Jacksonville game, week seven. They had nine runs for 10 yards or more. And remember, that was the game where they ran it on every single play down the stretch to finish off that game. I know it came down to the wire with Christian Kirk, but I'm talking about the previous offensive possession. Yeah. So since that game, Seahawks game, they had two runs for 10 yards or more. Texans, five. Lions one, Cowboys three. So you do the math. That means that they've had 11 runs for 10 yards or more in their last four games combined versus nine against the Jaguars. That's how much that's fallen off. And that, to me, has been an absolute killer, especially when you're not getting a lot of explosive plays through the air to begin with. Remember, the Darius Slayton 44-yard catch against Dallas was like a breath of fresh air. You need to be able to get them on the ground, and they just have not been there. Oh, it's a big deal. And and to a lesser degree, and maybe I shouldn't even say this because people are going to overplay it and think that I'm making it a major factor. It's not a major factor, but it's a minor factor. Sterling Shepard was one hell of a blocker downfield for a wide receiver. Sure. Not a big guy, but Sterling used to throw his body around to extend running plays downfield. When you talk about getting to that second or third level, he did an awful lot of that. And all you had to do was go back and watch the tapes. He was really good at it. Now, he was gone by the fourth week of the season. So it probably wasn't missed as much in the ensuing weeks because they had the other factors with the line and the tight end squared away. But then when the line gets jumbled and the, your best blocking tight end is no longer there, and now, oh, by the way, just as a sidelight, your best blocking wide receiver also isn't there, is it any wonder 
why teams are, are able to do what they've done to contain Barkley? I mean, seriously, folks, just add up the math. It's there. The only thing, though, I will add, Paul, and I think those are fair points, they have been using, though, additional offensive linemen to make up for the lack thereof at other positions, and you would think that that would help offset, at least at the initial point of contact. To your point, you're not necessarily getting all those offensive linemen up the field like with Sterling Shepard, but you would think if you're utilizing sometimes six, seven offensive linemen on the field, especially before Nick Gates had to take over at center, that that would help you. Well, it certainly helped against uh, Houston. Yeah, but not clearly beyond that. And part of that was because now your depth at offensive line had to all of a sudden be inserted into the starting lineup because you lost a bunch of guys. Then the other problem is, and we've discussed this too, we we talked about it extensively on the Dallas pregame show the other day on Thanksgiving. The Giants have specialized in chopping at the rock and then having Barkley start to break explosive plays as the game wore on. Well, when they're down, it's, you know, by more than two scores, and all of a sudden it's now mid-fourth quarter, it's really hard to let Barkley to keep continue chopping away at the rock. You know, he's, he's getting less opportunities to do it. Time's against you. You, you, you know? don't have the luxury anymore. And yeah. again, what, and you don't think the coaching staff understands the whole psychology of the running back not having enough confidence or trust in the blocking scheme? They understand it too. They see what's going on. So why should they keep feeding him the rock if they know that they don't have that chemistry going like it's supposed to be. Why, why would you keep giving it to them? Well, but Paul, this also goes back to the conversations we've been having even during their winning streak where I kept referring to the law of average. More often than not, things are going to balance out over the course of the season. And you look at how much they relied on the running game and how close all of these games were. Well, what happens when now you're down by multiple scores? No and doubt. we've been talking about that the no last doubt. few weeks. Now the dynamics of your offense change. And the question I always had, and they're going to have to continue to prove this, is if the game has to lean on Daniel Jones' shoulders and the passing attack, are they in a position where they can hang with the opposition and finish drives the same way they've done on the ground? That is the looming question to me in these final six games. Well, you don't don't want Lance, and I know we want to get to this other caller real quick. It's really simple. If you're going to either be a pass-heavy team or a run-heavy team, you've got to have the components to be able to execute that style of play. Well, guess what? They don't have enough targets, quality targets, to execute a pass-heavy style of play. And now, because of what happened the last few weeks with injuries, they also don't have the components to execute a run-heavy style of play unless they're going up against a really substandard team like Houston. We talked about how how really sad and sorry the Houston Texans are. And so the Giants were able to get away with what they had, as limited of resources as were available, and still win that game. But right now, with, with, what, one bullet in the chamber of the passing game and maybe two bullets in the chamber of the running game, that's not going to beat a team of equal caliber or of better caliber than you are. It's not going to work, Lance. That's why they've got to get some of these guys back this week. Evan Neal and Bellinger are just absolutely huge, huge. Can I say huge one more time? Components (laughs) to this game. They're even more important than Moreau. Trust me when I tell you. Because 
If they can get Neil and Bellinger back and those guys can play at the level that they're supposed to play at, and who knows, they, they haven't missed a whole ton of time, so maybe they can you know, get back in the lineup without missing a step. If they can, that is the Giants' best chance to win this game. Reassert control of the game, the tempo and the narrative with your running game, with two of your regulars back in the lineup. That is their best chance to win this game. Even well, more so than getting guys back in the secondary. Both of those guys, to just piggyback off of what you're saying, they missed the last four games because they were both hurt in the Jacksonville game. I just wonder, and this is my bigger question for Bellinger, Paul, more so than Neil, given the severity of that eye injury, and I know he's obviously going to be wearing a visor the rest of the season, does it take him a game or two to it sort could. of get used to that? Sure and it could. Does it take him a game or two to also, you know, when you're healing, you're not going physically very hard in practice. I know. It's a very scary injury. They don't have a choice, Lance. No, I, I know. I'm not making excuses if, or anything. If, I'm if just talking cleared, about the reality. If he's cleared, he's got to get back in there, and they got to get whatever they can out of him. they got to say, Daniel, it's time to fly, baby. you got to go. You know, lift, lift those wheels up off the ground and take off the runway. You don't have a choice. Let's give give us what you got. And Ben Bredesen, who was just cleared for practice today, by the way, so was Ojolari and uh, Tony Jefferson. They were cleared to practice beginning uh, today. So those guys are obviously on track. Bellinger was never put on IR, so they don't have to designate a And neither was, Neil. Neil, neither was Neil. Neither was Neil. Absolutely. Yep. So, so even Bredesen, even Bredesen, because of his veteran uh, experience, even Bredesen getting back in there at left guard, could help because if you remember, he was playing a lot of snaps during the earlier part of the season when Barkley was running well. Yeah, he was one of the main guards in the equation, given the fact that Lemieux went down in the preseason. 201-939-4513, that is the telephone number. Guy is in Pennsylvania, joins us now on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Guy? Uh, good morning. Can you hear me? We hear you loud and clear. Very good. Uh I have you must a, be a late a thought. Or, you must be getting up pretty late if you say good morning. I don't know around yeah, where I, I am. It's a little bit more of the afternoon, but hey, everybody's on a different schedule. So, okay, yes, uh, I have a uh, something with Thibodeau and Neil. You know, when we got those two guys, I thought, boy, we now got two real dogs to put in the fight, and obviously, so far, it hasn't come to fruition. However, I see signs of Thibodeau really stepping it up, and, and of course, I'd hope Neil can come back from the injury and step it up as well. But uh, uh, something Dick Vermeil used to say, once it was 10 or 11 weeks into the season, the rookies aren't rookies anymore. And I, I've got to hope that Thibodeau and Neil can do what we thought they would do, and possibly uh, Bellinger back, and maybe even that, that guard, that young guard who plays with Bredesen. Uh, he's a force in the running game. Yes, he hopefully, is. Uh, hopefully uh, we could see those four people give us something that make us competitive in these remaining games which we're probably going to be the underdog in all of them. And uh, I'd just like your thoughts on that. All right, guy. Well, we appreciate the phone call. Thibodeau, Paul, in particular, let's start with him. 
the last game against the Cowboys, you're talking about a lot of quarterback hits. He just didn't necessarily get a sack. Actually, to be exact, Thibodeau had five. Five of his eight QB hits on the season came Thursday against Dallas. So that's very encouraging. And I think if you ask Wink and members of the defensive coaching staff, they'll tell you there are things he's doing to help impact other players. It's just not necessarily manufacturing into sacks. So I wouldn't be fooled just because he doesn't have an overwhelming amount of sacks other than obviously the game-changing play against the Ravens, which was the strip sack that helped seal the game. But he has been making an impact, especially if you look at what he did against Dallas. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, he is really coming on as of late. Uh, the knee injury at the beginning really slowed his his learning curve down. Uh, but I think that Thibodeau is is starting to to get into form. They needed him to do it earlier, but thank goodness the Giants won a lot of games without him necessarily being an impactful player. But now's the time, okay? I, I understand what the call is saying. You're not a rookie when you're already two-thirds of the way through the season. Now it's time, you know, to start showing a little bit more. Hopefully he can. Um, I have no problem with, with Evan Neal. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I think he's had a fine rookie season. And when you look at the Giants' run game in particular, when running behind right guard this year, they're averaging 4.9 yards a carry. When running directly behind right tackle, 4.4 yards a carry. And running off to the sideline on the right side, going around the edge wide, they're averaging 6.1 yards a carry. Okay? Those are all very effective numbers. And all part of why Barkley and Jones have been able to do what they've been able to do. So, yeah, has Neil had a couple of hiccups occasionally? On, on pass pro, sure he has. He's a rookie. But at the same time, uh, I don't have any trouble at all with his run blocking. Plus, in fairness, Neil's been out the last four games, as we just talked about. So to the caller's point, yeah, I understand you want to see these guys make an impact. they got to be on the field in order to make a true impact. And one offensive lineman in particular can only go so far because the four other guys need to do their jobs as well. Thibodeau, I think, can have far more of an impact on an island than maybe a guy like Evan Neal, if you look at it through that lens. As far as guys like Bellinger, Bellinger, I think, has been extremely impactful prior to the eye injury. He's made plays in the receiving game. He's chipped in in terms of blocking. I think you could argue, Paul, and I don't know necessarily what the expectations were for the entire coaching staff, but I would say he's been a pleasant surprise in terms of what he did immediately for this team during his rookie year, no? Yeah, I, I think I think we saw during training camp that he was going to be a comer. I mean, to be honest with you, even at rookie minicamp, I was like, wow, this guy is the star of rookie minicamp. I, I thought that all the way back in the spring. He had already pleasantly surprised me that he looked like a guy who was underdrafted. And I think that the, the Giants were just ecstatic as they saw him continue to uh, – you know, start taking bites of the sandwich during the course of the summer and realize that, you know what, this guy's going to wind up being our starting tight end right away. He's 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 good enough, plus the fact that the position was thin to begin with. Uh, all he had to do was, was clear a fairly low bar, but I think he cleared that and then some, and they were very, very happy with the way he was coming along until he got injured. You look at the stats on the season, and remember, the bar is not extremely high based on the receiving numbers because of the injuries and just the overall statistics. But even with Bellinger hurt, I mean, the guy still had 16 receptions for 152 yards, and he's tied for the team lead with two receiving touchdowns. So, I mean, that's a guy that 
in seven games to get that level of production out of him, I would say you'll definitely grab that and hope that when he does come back, he can pick up where he left where he left off. Because if you look at the guys ahead of him in those statistical categories, Shepard's not here. Wandell Robinson is hurt. So the only two guys in the receiving court, because Barkley to me is a runner, is Darius Slayton and Richie James. That's it. Bellinger's third of active players on the roster who are not done for the season. Bellinger is third in terms of receptions, receiving yards, and then I mentioned he's tied for the team lead in receiving touchdowns. So when you look at his numbers in comparison to the rest of the team, I would say he's delivered from that standpoint. Oh, yes, there's no doubt about that. And to go back to what I said, what, seven or eight minutes ago, Barkley trusted him as a blocker. That's a big deal, a very big deal. And Josh Azudu, just the last one that the caller brought up, Azudu is somebody that's been in and out of the lineup. You go back to, Paul, the Tennessee game, right? In the second half, they utilized him on some of those lengthy drives where they were able to finish with a touchdown. So he's had flashes, but he hasn't necessarily been a consistent staple in the lineup. So I think given what was his background, a guy that played multiple positions in North Carolina, sort of Mr. Versatility, you could plug him in. They've tried to maximize what they can get out of him, but it's also hard to evaluate him from the standpoint of they haven't had him in one spot and he hasn't started consistently. So the jury is still very much out given the fact that it's not like you have 11 games of Azudu in one position and you know exactly what he could do within that sample oh, size. I think they know he's going to be a quality NFL guard because his run blocking right out of the blocks as a rookie has been really good. Now, the problem is the last couple of weeks – He's been battling a neck injury that has clearly hampered the usage of that one arm, and I won't tell you which, but it's it's hampered the usage of one of his arms, and consequently, you know, he's playing uh, shorthanded, if you will, and and that has been part of the issue. He's not physically right at the moment. Now, his pass protection, we all knew. Look, the plan when they drafted him, honestly, Lance, he was supposed to be redshirted for the first season here. The idea was he was going to get acclimated. They were going to teach him how to play one spot, and he was going to redshirt his first year and be inactive every week. That, that was the original plan. He was not necessarily going to be part of your everyday game day dress lineup. That was, that was not the deal. But they had to rush him along because of injuries, and fortunately his run blocking out of the box was good enough that it made him a viable alternative. And he wound up playing a ton of snaps so far. God bless him. But if you think that you're seeing what Azudu is or seeing his his potential right now, you're wrong. There's a lot higher ceiling on this kid, a much higher ceiling. The future is incredibly bright for him. The fact that he has started off out of the block like this just tells you how good he's going to be. Well, and that was my point. I mean, I think you pretty much summed it up where I was saying I think he's scratching the surface, but... When we haven't seen him out there consistently, I wouldn't draw end of the year or end of career conclusions based on him being moved around, plus on top of the fact that he's been dealing with some injuries. But encouraging signs, there's no doubt about it, for some of the opportunities that he's received over the first 11 games of the season. All right, that is going to wrap up Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We'll be back up and running again on Tuesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern as we start to turn our attention to another divisional game, the first of two. 
against the Washington Commanders at MetLife Stadium this Sunday. A reminder, today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live, part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest, and we'll speak to you on Tuesday right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Have a good one.